Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Hey, this is Sean Ramosfer. I host Vox's daily news podcast, Today Explained. But I'm here to talk about Vox Conversations, the feed you're in right now, where we bring you conversations between some of the brightest minds and smartest people we know. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into something scary, but sadly relevant right now, the topic of fascism. Vox's Sean Illing talks with Yale professor Jason Stanley, who wrote a whole book on it. Here is Sean, the other Sean. Take it away, Sean. The word fascism has been tossed around a lot over the last four years, usually as an epithet, and it's hard to know what it even means anymore. But after Trump, after the attack on the U.S. Capitol and the specter of violence looming over American politics ever since, this debate feels much more urgent. Jason Stanley is a professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of How Fascism Works. It's one of the most influential books on the topic in recent memory. And strange as it is, we don't really have a consensus on the meaning of fascism. It's a very slippery term, and trying to apply it is tricky. But Stanley has a somewhat controversial view. Most people think of fascism as an ideology or a type of government. Stanley says it's a way of doing politics, a way of seizing power, using language and propaganda. That may sound like an academic distinction, but it's not. If fascism is what happens before a government has been transformed, then knowing that is key to recognizing the threat before it's too late. I wanted to talk all this through with Stanley, especially now. Trump isn't president anymore, but the cultural conditions that made his brand of fascism possible are still with us, and so are the dangers. What are we supposed to do about that? I found this conversation challenging and at times disturbing. This is a tough look at what has happened over the last four years, how we got here, and what might come next. Ultimately, this isn't just a conversation about fascism, it's a conversation about the pathologies of American democracy. So here's my conversation with Jason Stanley. Jason Stanley, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to talk to you again, Sean. So there's been a debate raging over the last four years about whether to call whatever the hell happened over the last four years fascism or not. You were way out in front on this saying, yes, yes, this is fascism. And a lot of people on the other side called you an alarmist. I'm guessing you're feeling pretty good about that position these days, given everything that has happened. Well, naturally, I'm not feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm incredibly concerned about the future and where we're headed, because I think we have a fascist social and political movement that is increasingly powerful, increasingly has elite adherents uh, like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. So that concerns me. But I'm completely unsurprised by Trump's post-election behavior, by the attempted coup 
and the other developments that one would have missed if one had not taken Trump seriously. We'll get into Trump, but I think it would be helpful at the top here to maybe step back a little bit and explain what you think fascism actually is and and how you think it actually works. In my experience, most people think of fascism in one of two ways. Either they think of it as a coherent ideology like communism or something like that, or they think of it as a type of government. You think of it a little bit differently. That's right. It's not helpful to think of it as a regime type in the first instance, uh, and it's not helpful to think of it as a set of coherent beliefs. Fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, minorities, and leftists. He says leftists pose a fundamental threat to the nation, and only allegiance to him and his party can deal with the problem. Fascism takes many different forms in different countries. The Ku Klux Klan in the United States has long been regarded, as Paxton called, the first functionally fascist organization. So I prefer to talk about fascist forces uh, following Toni Morrison in a speech she gave at Howard University called Racism and Fascism in 1995. And what she says is that the United States has often preferred fascist solutions to its political problems. Now, what does she mean by that? Well, in that speech, what she's discussing is the massive incarceration system, criminal justice, that the United States had developed post-Nixon, essentially uh, after the civil rights movement, to disenfranchise black citizens. You could also add to that media organs that serve as propaganda functions that lie on behalf of of a would-be leader of a fascist social and political movement. So you can have a a regime that's a democracy and an economic system that's capitalist, but if you have massive racial injustice and massive inequality, then you're going to have fascist forces fascist social and political forces. You're going to need every city has a militarized police force to deal with potential uprisings from its impoverished minority neighborhoods that protect its fancy neighborhoods. And then we have a longstanding history, of course, of white supremacy that's baked into our institutions, that's sort of reinforced by inequalities. And then we have failure of elites, So failure of elites, like in the Iraq war and the financial crisis, uh, will lead to fascist propaganda and demagoguery being effective. So we need to think about fascist forces, fascist social and political movements, and fascist tactics, uh, and then background conditions that make all of these effective. And that's when you have to worry about a fascist leader emerging who has a kind of relationship with his followers, where he can tell them, you know, the minorities are rising up against you, the immigrants are flooding the gates, the elites have failed you, and he can create this bond between him and his supporters. That's when you have to worry about a potential fascist regime down the line. So fascists are speaking to this disgruntled population, this alienated population. What specifically are the fascist solutions that are being offered in response to those problems? And why is it appealing to that population? 
So it's it's crucial. I mean, there are many disgruntled and rightly disgruntled populations in, say, the United States right now. Black populations have every reason to be disgruntled by the failures of Democratic and Republican administrations, both in the local and national level. But they're not embracing fascism because fascism is a movement for the dominant group, for the dominant majority, the dominant ethnic group. So it's not just disgruntled people. It's the disgruntled majority who can be made to feel as if a focus on minorities threatens them and threatens their cultural standing and their economic viability. So what the fascist leader promises is to put down these minority insurrections, to seal the gates for immigrants. So the British fascist uh, Mosley in Britain, Oswald Mosley, you know, his motto was Britain for the British. So uh, fascist movements often focus on immigrants. Uh, in, In India right now, what we're seeing is the focus on religious minorities. In Israel, the focus on Palestinians. So you you claim that this minority group is of great threat to you, and you're going to deal with them. And then you claim that leftists and socialists, that behind the center left are really the communists. And behind the center left, like Goebbels has this amazing speech, uh, well, amazing, he has this speech, communism with its mask off. And in that speech, he says, he, he says, you know, the Bolsheviks are coming. You know, the center left, they're really the Bolsheviks. Uh, he says elsewhere that if you can make the ordinary citizen think that the Bolsheviks are right around the corner about to steal their house, then they will rush into our arms. So you tell the religious conservatives, you know, the communists are out and leftists are out to destroy your traditions. Nowadays, all across the world, you use transgender rights as a sort of fear-mongering thing. You say they're trying to turn your boys into girls. The gay agenda, as we see in Poland and Hungary and Russia with the fascist movements there, the gay agenda is threatening your traditions. So you raise this terrifying fear. The racism part of this is fairly easy to understand, right? Fascism kind of reduces the world to an us-them dynamic. There's us and them and the good guys and the bad guys. Why is the nostalgia part of this so hugely important to the appeal of basically every fascist movement we've ever seen. Nostalgia is central. Any country that has a major group in the dominant majority that feels it was robbed of a glorious past, that it has to feel ashamed of a glorious past, the Confederacy, the lost cause, obviously, that is often the source that here is the source of a lot of the sort of most committed fascists in the hardcore movement. Nostalgia is an emotion. If you're feeling anxious and somebody can convince you that your anxiety and fear and instability is due to the fact that you've lost something, something was taken from you, you once were great and you once just got respect just for being you, for being a white guy, for being a Hindu man, just for being you, you got everything. This is what Du Bois, and this is how long we've been dealing with this, well, this is what Du Bois in uh, Black Reconstruction calls the psychological wages of whiteness. This extra money, this wage that you get in America just by being white, the sense that you're special, you're better, you're, hard, you're, you're regarded as a legitimate citizen, Uh, among the legitimate citizens because you are white. And I'm going to restore that past again, where you can feel pride just for being you. This is why Trump's 
slogan, make America great again, is such a perfect fucking distillation of the fascist pitch. And I want to mention your colleague at Yale, Timothy Snyder, calls this the politics of eternity. And I want to say what that is really quickly, because I, I really do think it, it captures this, right? I mean, why do we strive for better policies today? Well, presumably, it's so that our lives can be better tomorrow. But Trump, with that slogan, reverses that, right? So he anchors his whole appeal to this, as you were saying, mythological past, so that voters are thinking less about the future and more about what they think they lost. And Trump was never really after success. He was after failure. In other words, it wasn't about passing legislation or bettering anyone's lives. He defined the problems in such a way that they can't be solved, right? Because we can't go back in time. We can't retrieve some imaginary golden past, right? So these voters were always condemned to live in this perpetual disappointment. And that is what keeps this vicious wheel of resentment on which fascism feeds turning endlessly and endlessly and endlessly. And that's why we feel stuck in this loop. Yeah, so Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying of Whiteness, is really good on this. This idea that people crave to see their opponent in this kind of politics, fascist politics, they crave to see their opponents punished. Uh, Timothy Snyder calls this sadopopulism. You know, West Virginia, Kansas, Tennessee, they reject billions and billions of dollars from the federal government to expand Medicaid. They cut taxes for the wealthy to destroy their public schools. All of this harms the very white people who are voting. There are very few black citizens of, of West Virginia. And they're doing it uh, interview after interview shows because they believe that me Medicaid expansion would help black people, the undeserved, what they call the undeserved. So this kind of politics, that revenge and retribution for stealing your past is far more important than material benefits to yourself. This is the heart of fascist politics. It's how you mobilize to war. Well, it's also the ultimate hoodwink that is fascism, right? Because it inflames grievances while at the same time reinforcing the conditions that brought about those grievances in the first place. Absolutely. You need Trump or any similar leader needs to run again and again on racial division. And you make racial division worse by allowing COVID to rampage through minority neighborhoods, making social divisions worse. The worse social divisions are, the more tension there's going to be and the more you can run as a law and order president. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. In your book, you talk about the importance in every fascist movement of smashing the truth, to use your, your words. And I think this is an important point that's worth lingering on just for a second, right? Because most totalitarian ideologies are trying to persuade an entire population of a single, singular truth. But fascism does something a little different. It's not trying to persuade everyone to believe the same thing. It, in a way, it's trying to make truth in a relevant category altogether. Why is that so important? So fascism is about will. That's why it's sort of incorrect to think of it as an ideology in the sense of a set of beliefs. It's about power and will. And power and will is this guy's will versus everything else. And truth, what truth does for you is it levels power, speaking truth to power. In a society that respects truth, someone with less power 
can point out that someone with more power is lying, and the person with more power who's lying will be humiliated. But if you destroy truth and make it just about power, that can't happen. Now, what we've seen is we've seen an extraordinary attack on truth, and we've seen sort of an object lesson in how to do this. So theorists of fascism, such as Carl Schmitt, argue that at the very center of fascism is, I mean, advocates of fascism, a friend-enemy distinction. So Carl Schmitt's political philosophy was at the center of politics was the friend-enemy distinction. Carl Schmitt was the Nazi political theorist. It's worthwhile bearing down on what the friend-enemy distinction does for truth. If you represent your opponent as a fundamental enemy, if you represent them as just really a concealed Muslim communist gay terrorist out to destroy your family, then the truth doesn't matter. If I'm on the battlefield and my enemy who wants to try to kill me says something true, it's irrelevant. They're trying to kill me. If they are saying something's true, it's just because it's part of a greater mission to kill me. If my leader lies, well, he's lying to protect me. So truth and falsity just become irrelevant in a politics based around the friend-enemy distinction. And there's another point about truth that isn't abstract. I mean, you've said that quite literally, we cannot be free if we do not live in truth, if we do not know the truth. What do you mean by that? If you had a poll in North Korea, I suspect that 95% or more of the people would vote for their leader. And that's because they've been lied to. So we don't think the people of North Korea are free because the people of North Korea have been lied to. The central concepts of values of democracy are freedom and equality. Truth is central to both. Truth is central to equality because political equality is speaking truth to power. And truth is central to freedom because if you've been lied to, then your actions aren't free. If you tell me, if you convince me that the person coming down the street is trying to kill me and I hit them, then there's an argument that my action wasn't free. It was affected by these false beliefs. If our entire belief system is shot through with falsehood, we're not free. So to kind of circle back to the fascist elephant in the room here, why do you think it's important to call Trump a fascist, assuming you do in fact think it's important to call Trump a fascist? I think it's important, you know, people focus on what's in his heart. I don't care about that. I I care about what he's doing. And he is creating a fascist social and political movement with himself as the leader. And I don't care if in his heart he's just doing it for power. That is what fascists will often do. So I think it's vital because it's vital to understand and predict. Now, when you see what's happening, as the creation of a fascist social and political movement, then you expect certain things to happen. You expect political violence. You expect naked attempts to steal an election. You take Trump literally. And what happened was because the mainstream media completely regularized this, they were taken by surprise by developments that didn't take me by surprise at all. Now, I'm not saying that you can predict the order in which things occur. I mean, the claim that we are facing a fascist social and political movement is not a claim about the temporal order in which things occur. First, they arrest political opponents, then they do steal elections, then they pack the courts. No, because those happen in different orders in different societies. But it does tell you that a bunch of things will happen. 
unclear what order. I mean, there may be no Reichstag fire moment. It may happen gradually, like it happened in Hungary. Attacks on the free press, you know, mass political violence. But if you view what's happening as the creation of a fascist leader-follower movement, then you will understand why nothing's really being done for the, for the followers or being kept in a state of resentment. Uh, this frame helps you expect what will happen and predict what will happen. And it's a frame. So some people, I think their frames did not help at all, like just viewing Trump as a clown. That frame didn't help at all. In fact, it wildly misled people. Trump is, was, was no clown. If you viewed him as a clown, you saw the destruction of the government and the constant rotating of people through positions as just incompetence. If you viewed him as a fascist, you saw it as a way to keep him and his most loyal people the constant stable mainstays so no one else could do anything. So these are frames. And then there are even differences in frames between those uh, who are close to me who are also very alarmed by Trump. So Ruth Ben-Ghiat in her brilliant book, Strongman, has this strongman frame where Trump is a strongman like Mussolini. And now that frame to me is important and I've learned a lot from it, but it takes your eyes off the Republican Party. The Republican Party has been doing fascist things since Newt Gingrich, since Reagan, really. And when you just focus on one person like Trump, then you fail to see that the Republican Party has been preparing you for strongman leadership in her sense. Do you think Trump's clownishness, to use your word, made it harder to see him for what he was? I mean, you know, this guy is a fucking moron. I mean, he's just, he's just transparently buffoonish. And yet that somehow made it easier to regularize him. And then eventually you look up and you realize, oh, shit. This is a real hazard. This is a real problem. But by then it's too late. He's already been regularized. He's already transformed our whole politics. That was exactly what occurred. Uh, he was extraordinarily effective at destruction and intentionally effective. And if you listened like I did to his rallies all the time and his speeches, he was always telling you what he was doing. He didn't hide the fact that he was trying to sabotage the election. He used COVID intentionally and deliberately. He spread COVID denialism as part of an election strategy. First, it was to target blue states. You know, we know from the Vanity Fair July article that the Jared Kushner team gave up on a national strategy because it targeted blue states. Then it was part of a method to increase same-day election day turnout among his supporters and then attack the post office and and then say, okay, we won an election day, so uh, absentee ballots shouldn't count. So this was all planned. The constant destruction of government, that was part of a plan too. Uh, I mean, I don't care if he had it mapped out in his head or not. It was brilliant because when you constantly rotate people through and you destroy the permanent institutions and structures, you're leaving rule just for yourself and your henchmen. It's partly because of his clownishness that he he transformed politics into something very different, right? I mean, part of the fascist shtick is replacing the marketplace of ideas and, and that sort of thing with pure emotion, pure theater, pure spectacle. And once you're in that realm, that's closer to you know, the Roman Colosseum or to professional wrestling than it is to the magisterial uh, debates in the you know Senate chamber. And that makes him 
very difficult to deal with using the conventional tools of liberal democracy, like argument, like persuasion, like ideas. Yeah. I mean, he is completely replacing whatever public sphere we had, which was a sort of a public sphere that, you know, you're never going to be able to do politics without emotion. So uh, there's there's the idea that we can do politics without emotion is somewhat of a liberal myth. But when there's no place for argument at all anymore, when it's entirely us, them, and he did these political moves. So you saw it, for instance, with the China virus, but he always did this to deflect attention. He tried to goad his opposition into calling him a racist because that would then gin up his supporters who got incredibly excited about that and then create you know, another week of news where it's all like, look at the liberals, ha ha, accusing Trump of racism. So it was constantly deflection, emotion, owning the libs, owning the libs. So that that was the sort of a schadenfreude, uh, as, you know, the philosopher Susanna Siegel has been focusing this on some editorials of the Tampa Bay Times. The use of schadenfreude, like, it's all about seeing your opponent squirm. And then fundamentally, the ultimate seeing your opponent squirm is having Trump win. And ultimately, that ha- having, you know, seeing your opponent squirm, the best way to own the libs is giving Trump immense power, keeping him in a third term and a fourth term, appointing his kids. That's the best way to make the liberal elites squirm. You really want to get back at them? The person they find most obnoxious and vulgar is Trump. So the best way to get back at them is empower Trump. We're going to take one last break. And when we come back, Stanley and I will talk about why fascism has only ever emerged out of democratic societies. Has your view of fascism changed in any significant way over the last four years, having watched this in real time? Well, I think it's changed. uh, My 2018 book was based internationally. So I was looking at India, uh, Hungary, a bunch of different countries where we're seeing fascist social and political movements led by these leaders uh, at their helm take over democracies. The, The level to which my 2018 book has been like a blueprint for this administration and it's for the last administration and its politics surprised even me to some degree. I've, I've learned, I think, from the objections to the fascists, from the debate, from my colleague Sam Moyne and others and Corey Robin, who've pushed back against calling it fascism. I've learned about how to think about some of the challenges to the thesis. And the objection to the fascism charge is often people saying, look, really the problem is neoliberalism. Really the problem is the billionaire class. Really the problem is the oligarchs. And by calling it fascism, you're letting them off the hook. What I realized in debating with my colleagues about these issues is that fascism, this this frame that the black radical tradition has always used of fascist forces, fascist answers to political problems. I've realized how important that frame is because oligarchy can lead to fascist solutions to national problems. Oligarchy plus racial division will lead to militarized police forces that enforce mass detention on minorities and opponents to preserve the oligarchy. So what I've learned is that it's really deep and important, this insight in the black radical tradition, that you know you can talk about the United States' institutions and structures as fascist. And that's 
more important than thinking about regimes. I think early on I thought, okay, I'm talking about fascist political tactics. There are fascist regimes too, and that's the worry. But the way in which the black radical tradition, which has always informed my work, has continued to help me through seeing that that's what we're facing is something that I've that I've learned. And of course, it's helped me understand, as we've seen black Americans tell us for generation after generation, the law enforcement, you know, there's a reason why Trump is constantly appealing to law enforcement, because there are elements in law enforcement that are there to be his army. You made a point earlier, and that is that democracy really is the mother of fascism, and that fascism has always and only emerged out of and inside democratic societies. It's almost a pathology of democratic societies. Why is that? So my 2015 book, How Propaganda Works, is about this. That's the sort of academic work I wrote on this topic. Uh, Democratic political philosophy, since John Rawls, has focused on redistribution. What's a good way to redistribute? In my 2015 book, I try to argue that the central problem of democratic political philosophy dating back to Plato is how democracy leads to tyranny. Dating back to Plato, the issue with democracy was its stability in the face of free speech. Democracy requires freedom. It requires freedom of character. So anyone can vie for office, including, as Plato warns us, a tyrant can vie for office. Anyone can vie for power. And then democracy requires free speech. So democracy forces us to allow anyone to seek power. And then it gives you tools like freedom of speech. You can do anything with your speech. So it allows into the space of politics people who seek only personal power. And then freedom of speech allows them to do whatever they want. And Plato warns us in Book 8 of the Republic, democracy will lead immediately to tyranny. Someone who should never be in politics in the first place will come in with an appetite for power spread fear of foreigners, of internal enemies, represent himself as the only protector, and then seize power and never give it up. Fascism, I regard as the modern version, the sort of far-right modern anti-democratic version of what Plato warned us about long ago. Yeah, I think that's right. And that point about free speech really is important because I think it was Goebbels himself, right, who was, for those who don't know, was a kind of Nazi propaganda minister. You know, he, he had said that the great joke of democracy was that it gave its enemies the tools with which to destroy it from within. And those tools were open mass media, free speech. And Goebbels even said that they, they being the Nazis, considered what they were doing more art than politics because they were, what they were doing was creating this alternative mythical reality that was more exciting and more purposeful than you know, the, the kind of humdrum reality of, of liberal democratic politics. And that's, and media, mass media, cinema, radio, these were the tools with which they did it. And we, we all know how that played out. Spectacle. I mean, it's no accident that Trump sees the leadership of a political party that's been preparing us for such, such a leader for generations by warning us of the dangers of minorities that, that will be replaced by immigrants, uh, some portion of the Republican Party at, at least, that's been reinforcing the inequalities. So they need this kind of myth, uh, and, they, and this leader emerges from television. I guess one thing I've learned looking at Trumpism is which aspects 
that you see in history are sort of most important to think about. Because it was sort of unclear to me 10 years ago, reading Hannah Arendt uh, or reading the anti-colonial literature like Césaire, it was unclear to me uh, which aspects you should pay attention to most. Like the people who are most brutal to Black Americans, like Rudy Giuliani, would end up being elevated to these positions where those tactics are broadened to the population at large. Uh, Another aspect is the one you're talking about, spectacle. Another aspect Arendt talks about is vulgarity. Like the masses like the idea that the fascist leader is regarded as vulgar because it allows them to laugh at the elites because they have to bow and scrape before someone they regard as vulgar. Uh, And then the replacement, the constant churning replacement of people in the administration to keep only the closest loyalists there. That's another tactic that clearly is warned about. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, taking an authoritarian leader seriously. So Trump obviously is out of our immediate political orbit, but the conditions that made him possible in the first place aren't going away. So what the hell do we do now? If fascism is this attempt to turn democratic politics into something more primal, more dark, more, more tribalistic, how do we slay that monster without becoming it? When we were children, they would call that the million-dollar question. I think now they would have to call it the trillion-dollar question. First of all, there's a long, there's this sort of long strategy. Long strategy has to focus on addressing inequality. It has to focus on our education system. It has to focus on not making the kind of catastrophic errors of refinancing the banking system so that somebody can come and say, look at how badly the elites are ruling. Look at how they've betrayed you. The Republicans are trying to set the Democrats up for that. They're trying to set set the Democrats up again, as they did under Obama. They're trying to get them to do less, to not come through for people, and to just come through for business interests, and they can say, look at the elites screwing up again. So you have to address it. You have to address education. People must know what the sources of racial inequality are, because then they won't fall for myths. Then they'll be ashamed of certain pasts that a fasc- would-be fascist leader are trying to make glorious again. So those are long-term solutions. You have to deal with racial inequality. I mean, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Societies will look back at us. Historians will look back at us and say, that society was regarded as a leading democracy. They had the highest incarceration rate in the world. We have to deal with our prison system. We have to deal with the fact that Black Americans may have you know, a fraction of the wealth of white Americans. They're under militarized police. Many black Americans have families incarcerated for incredible amounts of time. And as long as that happens, there's always going to be revolutions and uprisings. And as long as there are those revolutions and uprisings, it's going to empower a demagogic leader who's going to say, I'm going to deal with those uprisings. I'm going to be harsh. You have to do problem dissolution. Problem dissolution involves addressing racial inequality so there's no more uprisings that can then be that a demagogue can then use. You have to address rural poverty. You have to show up with people from the government addressing the real-time problems of the base of any fascist social and political movement. There's always going to be fascist would-be fascist supporters. They're always going to be there. You just have to reduce their number. 
You have to reduce their number by education, by making people understand what they're supporting. You have to reduce their number by making it less and less plausible that the elites, that the government is really stealing their money and giving it to someone else. You have to lessen the fear that other people's liberties are at the cost of your liberty. Well, this is why I think some of your colleagues on the other side of the fascist argument do have a point about billionaires and plutocrats being the problem, because we hear this phrase as it relates to Trump supporters, you know, the working class all the time. But fascism is really a middle class phenomenon. And it's a kind of politics that keeps the middle class, keeps their attention geared towards their imagined enemies, rather than focusing on the people with power who are actually keeping them restrained or oppressed or limited in, in whatever way. And that is a huge part of this equation. Absolutely. As Timothy Snyder said to me recently, he's like, the Marxist definition of fascism might not have been very accurate in the 1930s, but it's awfully accurate right now. <laughs> the Marxist definition of fascism being ultranationalism in the service of the finance elite. So a lot of those solutions you just threw out there sound like big, over-the-horizon structural reforms, and they're all good and important, but I'm not sure what help they are in the more immediate term. Do you have any other ideas in terms of what to do right now? Because you know, reforming education is a long-term project, obviously, but we have a problem. You know, The barbarians are at the gate right now. So what do we do right now? So right now, we have accountability to send a message that you can't get away with overthrowing an election. If you don't send that message of accountability, you're simply urging people on. You're simply opening the gates. So there has to be accountability. And secondly, in what I would describe as the medium term, uh, we have to restore norms of truth, respect for the truth. We have to return things to the time when a politician caught lying would get some kind of public humiliation. So to put a bow on all this, what do you think the next fascist wave might look like in this country. And we all hope that wave doesn't come crashing anytime soon, but it is always a possibility for all the reasons we've already stated. What do you think that the face of the next fascist movement might look like? And do you think we can hold it at bay? It will be hard to hold it at bay, given what Trump has already shown as possible. Trump has shown that you can get people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. Let's be clear about who Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are. I may be a Yale professor, but I went to a public school in Syracuse, New York, and a state university in New York. I didn't meet Ivy League grads until I was in grad school. They were very intimidating to me. Ted Cruz is my age, went to Princeton when I was you know, clean, cleaning the, the floors of bus stations to put my way through myself through college. He went to Princeton, was a top debater, and then went to Harvard Law School. Josh Hawley went to Stanford and then Yale Law School. These are not just the elite. They are, these are the elite of the elite of the elite who've been Ivy League coastal elites their whole lives. And they are destroying our democracy. They have joined this movement. Enough oligarchical elites uh, have seen that they can use this movement. There was a brief moment among Republicans to see if they could break from Trump, but that seems to have subsided. It might actually be Trump's continued power. You know, as long as we don't deal with the underlying problems caused by the oligarchs, the billionaires, the inequality, racial and economic patriarchy, as long as we don't deal with this, we will always have this problem. And to some extent, fascism will always be with us in democratic societies to be marshaled. But in two years, can the Democrats deflate the tires 
of this. It's going to be extremely difficult. And then in four years, we have Tucker Carlson, who I think is a likely future president. You know, we have people who are extremely good at this kind of politics and have watched carefully what Trump has managed to do. What do you think is the biggest lesson that the Cruises and the Howleys and the Carlsons of the world will have learned from these last four years? That there are no restraints, no punishment, no accountability, that you can go much farther than you ever thought possible in seizing power in the United States. Well, this is a dark and difficult, but a very important conversation. And I'm damn glad we were able to have it. So Jason Stanley, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Sean. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Vox Conversations. The show is produced by Zach Mack. Daniel Turek mixed and mastered this episode. The theme music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our consulting editor is Allison McAdam. And Liz Kelly Nelson is Vox's editorial director of podcasts. Let us know what you think of the show. We want to hear from you at voxconversations at vox.com. Send us an old electronic mail to voxconversations at vox.com. Or rate and review us wherever you listen. Thanks so much. 